We are uh, going to start a little bit of a, of a new session for the next month in Sunday School. Uh, we are going to be walking through corporately uh, our membership process. Uh, we, once every three months, teach our membership class to individuals in the church who are interested in becoming members. And we do it right up there in room 208. Uh, anyone that's a prospective member at Mission Road Bible Church comes and attends a month-long class. Uh, but a conversation that we've been having recently with, with the leadership is that it's often easy for those who have been through the membership process uh, to, to forget much of what is covered in that class. And so rehearsing those truths are important. They're, they're helpful for me as I teach through that class to cover on, on a, I cover that content four, four times a year. And it's always helpful for me personally. And so we thought that it would be wise and good and helpful for our body to revisit the membership class and, and, and what it is that's covered over the course of those four weeks. One of, uh, one of the primary reasons for that is the fact that we, we often forget. We often forget what it is that we commit to. We often forget why it is that we make those commitments. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be walking through our membership class. This is even going to bleed over a little bit into our Sunday morning worship service uh, that follows the Sunday school class. Rick is going to preach one of these classes uh, as he's going to walk through what it is that, that new members are committing to. We often hear those new commitments. Every time we have new members standing right here, they give a, a list of commitments, and it's long. Uh, it's, it is good to revisit those things because we've all committed to doing those things. And so the practice that we're going to do is, is say, what have we committed to? Why is it that we've committed to those things? I'm, I'm well aware that there's various levels of individuals here in this class right now in regards to membership. There are many of you who are currently members right now. Uh, if you are currently a, a member uh, of Mission Road, let me encourage you to see these next four weeks uh, as, as a reminder to view this as an opportunity to revisit what it means to be committed as a member of Mission Road and why it is that we commit as members to Mission Road, to stretch and challenge and to evaluate yourself and say, how, how am I doing it, fulfilling that role, those things that I am committed to being? There are also probably sitting in here this morning non-members. Uh, let, me, let me ask you, as a, if you are not a member of Mission Road, to seriously consider the content that we are going to cover. Uh, what we're going to walk through this morning is, is the admission that there is not a verse in the Bible that says you must be a member of a church. However, I believe that we will see not only that membership is biblical, and not only that membership will help you immensely in your growth as a Christian, but that ultimately, I believe you are hard-pressed to present a convincing argument to deny membership. Uh, there's a third category of, category of individuals that I need to speak to just briefly, and that is kind of those who are in between non-members and members, and that is prospective members. If you are interested in becoming a member at Mission Road, uh, we need you to reach out to us and let us know that you are planning to become a member at Mission Road. The, the most significant thing that you have to do if you want to be a member at Mission Road is, is sit through this class. But there are a few other things that you need to do, a few different files that you need to read. There's a, uh, an interview with one of our elders. Uh, there's, there's a membership process uh, that you need to go through. And we don't want anyone that wants to be a member to slip through the cracks even as we walk through the content of the class with, with everyone that's in here on a Sunday morning. So if you would like to be a member at Mission Road and you are not currently a member at Mission Road, please send us an email. Those are your marching orders. You can email Kathy. Uh, her email is in the 
uh, in the announcement sheet, or you can find it on the website, and just let her know. I, I'd like to become a member. Please send me the documents that I'll need uh, to pursue membership. But for the rest of us, members or non-members, there is immense benefit to covering this topic and uh, to reevaluate and remind and revisit what we have committed to and why it is that we've done so. There are pleas for membership all around us. Membership is, is not an uncommon thing. Uh, we, we face pleas for membership on a daily basis. It seems that every time I check out at the grocery store or at any store that I am faced with a decision to make. I'm faced with a cashier looking at me and saying, would you like to become a rewards member at this fine institution? And they will then sell me on why it is that I should become a rewards member at that fine institution, that I will receive 15% off my purchase that day and 5% off for the rest of my purchases over my course of time of shopping at that store or whatever the deal may be. They, they, they sell me on trying to become a rewards member. Over the course of time, I've, I've developed a very, what I believe, appropriate response to that question. It is without fail, not today. Not to, I think not today is a great answer because you're not being mean. You're just saying today's not a great time. You're kind of leaving the door open for the, they're just the cat. They have to ask that question, Right. That's a good response. Not today. Not today. Thanks, but not today. That's what I say. Without fail, deliver it just like that every time. We, we are inundated with membership requests. This morning, I typed in the word join and membership into my inbox, and over 1,000 emails came back. We're, we're, we're inundated with requests to become members. And so I, I want to come into this topic of membership in the church with, with awareness of the fact that it's a little bit tainted culturally, uh, just, just with, with the inundation that we have for requests for membership. I want us to be careful as we approach the context of membership in the local church to not see it like every other level of membership that we are often faced with. If we are not careful, church membership can fall into that same category um, of something that we either once committed to long ago, uh, but we aren't really sure why. Uh, we aren't really sure what membership gets us uh, or what I'm supposed to do to maintain my membership. Um, so let's be careful as we come into this to make sure that we see church membership really as, as a whole different level of membership that we need to consider on a whole different level and take very seriously. This morning, what we are going to do in this class is I am going to be contending that membership is a biblical thing. I believe that membership is biblical. Um, and I'm going to make a case for that this morning while we've already admitted that there is not a verse in the Bible that says you should become a member, I believe that we will see thoroughly that membership is biblical. That being said, membership in 2019 in Kansas City, in the United States of America, in many ways does look very different than membership in the New Testament. And I want to give a brief explanation for why that is, because what we call our membership process probably does, in fact, look different than what the membership process looked like in the New Testament church. And often that is given as a reason that individuals will avoid or ignore membership entirely, because, you know, what you're calling this membership thing, I don't see that in Scripture. Well, there's a few reasons 
we're going to see that membership is biblical. But there, there are some differences in what membership looks like today versus what membership looked like in the early church. The key difference, I believe, is essentially the process for membership. The key difference between membership in our culture today and membership in the early church is the process for membership. There are two key changes that have caused the development in the process for membership. Two key changes, I believe, that have caused a change in the process for membership. The first is legal changes. There are legal realities in our culture and our context today that cause membership to look a specific way that may be a little bit different than it looked in the early church. A nonprofit corporation has bylaws and a governing agency and determiners of what constitutes the makeup of a church. Membership of a church is legally considered the individuals that constitute a church. And so even to be considered a church, uh, which, which from the government to be considered a church, which has massive implications from a, from a tax perspective, uh, that demands some form of membership. It demands some form of membership. And so there are legal implications for why membership looks the way that it does, that there's a, a documentation and a process for membership in accordance with our bylaws and our, our position, even as a, a nonprofit corporation. Uh, there are legal reasons that membership today looks different than membership in the early church. There are also not only legal changes, but there have been significant landscape changes uh, that have caused the membership process to look different than it once did. There are significant landscape cha changes. In the early church, in the New Testament church, essentially how one form formally and, and publicly identified with a church was through baptism. Baptism was how you publicly obeyed Christ and identified yourself with his body. Thus, in baptism, you were formally committing to the church. In the early church, in the New Testament church, there was a church in each location. So what that means is you had a church in Ephesus. You had a church in Philippi. In, in our culture today, we have churches everywhere, right? I drive by like seven churches to get to my church. So there's, there's, there's a landscape change that have happened there. There was one church in each area where the bodies of that area assembled together. That is no longer the case today. There's been a significant landscape change. So in the early church, baptism was how you publicly obeyed. There was a church in each location. And so as a baptized believer, you were committed to the church in that area. There is no comprehension in the New Testament of first an unbaptized believer. When someone became a believer, they were baptized. And, and secondly, of an unchurched believer. It, 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 isn't, it isn't even in the minds of the writers of the New Testament that that would be a possibility. There's no such thing as an unbaptized believer or an unchurched believer. That you were, you were saved into the church and that you were baptized into the church. However, when we look at our modern day, our modern day church, there is typically more than one church in any given area, different than the early church context. There are also, further complicating the matter, various denominations of churches and even multiple churches within the same denomination. Uh, those denominations that have arisen out of uh, doctrinal disagreements further complicate the matter of membership. Uh, in 2019, we have cars. It's not a thing in the early church, right? What that means is we have the ability to drive by seven churches to get to our church. We have the ability to go to a church in a city or in a town that we don't live in. 
The, the, the technology of our day has made that possible. You may very well drive past a good church to attend another good church for whatever reason. That was not an option in the early church. Further, the rate at which we move today is unprecedented in history. It's not uncommon for us to live in multiple different cities over the course of your life. While that's not wasn't necessarily impossible in the early church. It was not nearly as common as it is today for someone just to pack up and move cities because of a new job. All of these things, I would suggest, complicate the scenario of membership. Here's, here's the complication. We want to obey the biblical example of formal commitment to a body of believers. We want to obey that. That is, that is a biblical example that there's formal commitment into the church. It took place in baptism, but... It would go against the biblical example of baptism to re-baptize someone every time they joined, they, they came to a new church. That's problematic. It, it goes against even the picture of what baptism is. So in the early church, when people were more stationary, when there was only one church in a given location, they were baptized into the church. But today, in, in this landscape, where there are various churches, various denominations of churches, a growing ability for us to drive further, we often move locations. It demands not that we rebaptize every individual that walks into our church. It'd make for a very complicated visiting process, wouldn't it? Welcome to our church, here's a swimsuit, right? Walk in, baptize them. That, that, that would not be in accordance with the biblical picture of baptism. But there does still need to be, in accordance with the biblical example, a process for formal identification with the church in that place. Thus, where we stand today, in 2019, where we stand today is that in obedience to scripture, you need to be baptized as a believer However, there is also a process for formal commitment to the local church in your area. That is where we stand today. And that is why, that is why there is a different process for membership in 2019 than there was in the early church. Because rather than baptizing everyone that shows up at the church, there needs to be a formal process for identifying with that church like there was in the New Testament. At its heart, Membership in 2019 and membership in the early church have the same result. And that is formal commitment to a body of believers in a specific place. That's what membership is. It is formal commitment to a body of believers in a specific place. So that is where the rest of our time is going to be spent this morning. Talking through, really just answering that question. If membership is a formal commitment to a body of believers in a specific place, is that really a biblical example? Is that really supported biblically? So what we are going to do for the next 35 minutes is look at membership sightings in the New Testament. Again, you will not find the word membership in the New Testament. It's not there. Membership is, is not necessarily a word that we see appearing, but ultimately that tells us nothing. We've talked about this regularly. We have all sorts of terms that are not found in scripture, but that describe what we see in scripture. The one that's most often used to illustrate this is that the word Trinity is not in the scripture. But if you deny the Trinity, that's heresy. Okay, so just because something is not in, a term itself is not in scripture, does not mean that the term that that refers to is not a scripture role concept. And I believe that we will see that of membership this morning. While a denial of church membership is certainly not heresy, please do not hear me saying that, I would argue that it is implied and assumed in the New Testament in a similar manner to the Trinity. 
So we're going to look at two things as we break this down this morning. First, we're going to look at New Testament statements that imply membership. There's statements all through the New Testament that imply a, a formal identification with a specific group of people in a specific place. There are statements that imply membership in the New Testament. Second, there are practices that demand membership. There are practices that demand membership in the New Testament. Things that the New Testament church was supposed to be doing that I'll suggest this morning could not have happened if there was not a formal identification with this specific group of believers in that place. So first, New Testament statements that imply membership. If you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 2. Open to Acts chapter 2. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 is is really the dawning of, of the first church. The first church is, is coming into existence in Acts chapter 2. And, and in this first church, we see interesting practices that are actually going to be carried out throughout the other churches that are going to spread because of this church in Jerusalem in Acts 2. In Acts chapter 2, we are given a sermon by Peter. Sermon delivers a gospel presentation And we read in verse 37 that those who heard this gospel presentation were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? So Peter preaches the gospel. Individuals are pierced. They're they're convicted in this preaching of the gospel. And they look to Peter and say, Peter, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, he says, in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Look down to verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. So Peter presents the gospel. Those who hear it are, are cut. They are pierced. They are convicted. They say, what do we do? Peter says, repent of your sins. And then we're told in verse 41 that those who received his word, in other words, those who, those who believed, those who took what Peter said, they believed it and they responded to it. What did those individuals do? We're given, were given three things that take place in verse 41. They received the word, they believed, they repented. Then they were baptized. They were baptized. They made a public proclamation of that internal repentance, an external proclamation of the internal event that had taken place within them. They were baptized and then we're told that immediately they were added in verse 41. That day there were added about 3,000 souls. Membership, I believe, is, is implied in that verse, that there are individuals who are saved, baptized, and added. As you keep reading through Acts chapter 2, we see what it is that they were added to. They were added to the, the essential functions of the church, that those who were added began to interact with others who were added as a local church. These, this, even this term added, I believe, implies membership on multiple levels. First of all, it's a, it's a passive word. They were, they were added. They did not add themselves. It's passive. There was, it was something that was done to them, that they were baptized, and then someone added them to that local church. Being added to the church is, is, is I think, clearly clearly an indication of some sort of membership process. It is not just that they believed and then started interacting as believers with other, with, with, with other believers. 
It is rather that they believed and they made a public proclamation of that that led to them being added to that local church. We have to ask the question, what does added mean there? It's something that was done to them. They were placed into a specific context. It's interesting to note that from the get-go, the church of Jerusalem is counting heads. If you read the end of verse 41, that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It's fascinating that there's a number, a quantifiable number that can be given for how many individuals are saved and baptized and added into the church. The church from day one, taking attendance is not something that developed a couple hundred years ago. Taking it, day one, they say there were about 3,000. They're going to keep counting as you look through Acts. They're, they're going to com- continue to add souls to the church. Tracking who is a part of the church has been taking place from day one of the local church. The local church knows who they are. They know that they are the 3,000 and growing in Acts chapter 2. There is a concrete identification of who it is that makes up the church. There is a formal identification with a specific body of believers, of individuals who were added to that body. So that is an example of some terminology that I believe implies membership. The word membership is not there, but even the notion of someone who is baptized being added to a specific assembly, I believe implies the concept of membership. Also in the New Testament, we see throughout terminology, um, body terminology. Paul often looks to the church and calls them a body. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is perhaps where this body terminology is most clearly employed. First Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members... And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be if the whole body we're hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they're all one member, where would the body be? But now they are. But now there are many members, but one body. He continues that terminology. He continues to illustrate it. He uses body terminology, and this is often used throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians 12 incredibly clearly. The question that we have to answer is, what is that body referring to? Is it referring to the universal church, or is it referring to the local church? When Paul says we were added into a body. when, when I use that terminology, if you're not familiar with it, universal church would refer to all believers everywhere are a part of the universal body of believers, a universal church. Uh, and then the local church is a place like this, a specific assembly. Mission Road Bible Church is a, a specific local church. Uh, there are members of the universal church, Christians everywhere who are not a part of this local church. Uh, but hopefully the universal church consists of many local churches all over the world. That's the difference in that terminology. So does the body terminology in 1 Corinthians 12 refer to the universal church or the local church? 
The body in 1 Corinthians 12 cannot refer to the universal church. The illustration would break down if that were the case. This is a passage about the spiritual gifts that we all receive and how they work together. Uh, that we all have different gifts and, and thus we function in different ways in the context of a body just like a body. A hand does a certain thing and an eye does a certain thing. And as believers, we've all been given unique spiritual gifts for the working together of the body. This is a passage about how those spiritual gifts work together and how we all receive them. Churches, local churches, do not have a, a unified spiritual gift. If the universal church is the body, then the local churches would be the members of the body, but, the, but that's inconsistent with what we see in Scripture. The, the, the body cannot be the universal church. The local churches cannot be the different parts of the body. It's not that there's a, that, that all of Christianity is, is, is the universal church and then there's hand churches and there's feet churches and there's eye churches. No, no, no. The picture in 1 Corinthians 12 is that every person, every individual has been given spiritual gifts and so they have a function within the context of their local church. The body terminology has to refer to the local church. It must be applied there. So if the body is the local church, the body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, if that is the local church, who are the members of the body? That is the question that is going to speak directly to, to membership. If we are a body filled with hands and feet and eyes and ears, all performing different functions for the good of the body, who actually makes up those, in Paul's terminology, those body parts? Who is it? Is it anyone who attends this church? Is it anyone who ever walks through those doors? There's really only two options. It's those who attend here or those who have formally committed in membership. Those are the only, I think those are the only two options we could, we could possibly say. It's either those who have formally committed in membership or it's, or it's just everyone that is here. Again, remember that there is no context in the New Testament for someone in a local church who hadn't formally committed to that church. There's no context for that in the New Testament. Everyone in the local church made a formal commitment to that church. The body terminology, therefore, doesn't apply to anyone who sets foot in a church. It, it cannot. It cannot. Because we are going to have people who walk into this church that, that, that don't even have a personal relationship with Christ. And so they have not been given the spiritual gifts that they're meant to have for the good of the body. And so I think it must mean, the body terminology must mean those who have made a formal commitment to that church. Body terminology, I believe, strongly points to membership. It strongly points to individuals who had made a commitment to a local church and therefore were a part of the body and were to function as a part of the body and be evaluated in their functioning as a part of their body. So uh, there, there's a couple illustrations. Acts chapter 2 has terminology that I believe implies membership. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 has terminology, body terminology, that I believe implies um, some sort of equivalent to our current modern-day membership process. There are other terms in the New Testament um, that point to this. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, we don't have time to turn to all these this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 uses the term majority as it's referring to a specific church, that there was a majority of the individuals. Again, I, I would just say that the use of terms like majority in the New Testament, um, that in that passage, it's in the context of church discipline, uh, that there is something that the majority of the church did to an individual. Um, the fact that you have a majority shows that you have a concrete tracking of individuals in that church. 
If you, if, if you have, if you can claim that something is a majority, then you have, you have to know how many the, the, the total is. There was concrete tracking of individuals in the church. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12, uh, we, we see the word that, that, that there was a group of individuals who chose not to join a specific group. They chose not to associate with a specific uh, church. And it's in the context where there are individuals who, they're around the church. Uh, they saw the work that was occurring in the church. They saw the work of the apostles, but they made a conscious decision not to join or to identify or to associate with that group. So there was a difference in the New Testament between being around the church and actually joining the church. There was a difference there. And I would suggest that that difference points again that, 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 that there's a membership process in the local church, that there was a formal commitment to a body of believers. So none of these statements say you must be a member in the local church, but they imply the practice of church membership in the early church. The early church added those who were baptized. The New Testament employs body terminology that implies formal identification of individuals who make up that body. And the use of terms like majority, added, join, associate are employed about the church throughout the New Testament, and I would suggest that those also imply membership. However, the New Testament goes further. I believe that there are not only statements that imply membership, but that there are practices commanded for the universal, commanded for the local church that demand membership. The first I would suggest, the first practice that demands membership is the, the one another commands in the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with commands that the church is supposed to perform to, the terminology is, to one another. Those one another commands, if you're not familiar with that terminology, one another commands are biblical commands that say we are supposed to do something to one another, to each other. The question that we have to ask in the, in the context of membership is who are the individuals that we must obey those one another commands with? Who does that apply to? Who is the one another? This, this, this ultimately comes down to a matter of obedience. Church, uh, scripture calls us to be faithful to one another in various capacities. So if I'm not doing that, if, I, if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do in that regard, I'm being disobedient. So we have to ask the question, who are the one another's? Because, because it matters for my obedience. Is it every believer in a city is it every believer in a state? Is it every believer in a nation? Is it every believer every, anywhere? There's certainly a sense where I think we should be carrying out those one another commands with believers as we interact with them. But those commands, as they're given in the New Testament, are given and meant to be applied specifically in the local assemblies that received them. When those commands show up to love one another and care for one another and bear one another's burdens, what is in the mind of the author and how the church would have received it is that they were supposed to be doing that with each other in the context of their local church. There wouldn't have been a category for doing it outside of that. And so that command, the practice of the one another's, I think points strongly to, it, it demands that there is some sort of formal identification of who are the one another's in a local church? Who are they? We, we start down that list, and it starts fairly easy to, to apply to pretty much everyone. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, spur one another on towards loving good deeds. But as we continue reading down that list of one another's, it, it becomes very obvious that it is meant to be applied in the context of the local church. Sing to one another. 
that, that, I think that's problematic if that's meant to be applied to every believer everywhere. Like, is my call as I interact with other believers in the world to sing to them? It would be weird if it was, right? Uh, I, I don't think that that's the call that Paul's giving you. As you look, as you walk around and you see a believer that doesn't go to your church, just sing at them. Like, that's not the call. The call is in the context of the local church. Sing to one another. These are meant to be applied in the local church. How about this one? <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. Very common command in the New Testament. It appears regularly, and the call is to, is to kiss the believers that you see. So that's changed a little bit contextually and how we're supposed to apply that. Um, please don't kiss me. But, but the heart of that command is to greet one another warmly, to show the love that you have for one another. And while that certainly could, can and, and should be applied to, to all believers as we interact with them, the, the call as it's given in scripture, is meant to be applied in the context of the local church. It says, when you eat, wait for one another. Immediately applicable in the context of the local church, and I would argue the context of the local church only. Confess your sins to one another. These are local church practices. I believe that there must be a formal identification with who is that one another. Who are we to do these with? Or perhaps the better question is, who are we disobedient if we don't do these things too? That's a question that we have to answer if we're going to be obedient to what scripture calls us to be. Is it anyone who walks through those doors? What if it's someone that walks through those doors twice a year? What, what, if, it's, what if it's once a month? What if it's every other week? What if it's every week? What if someone is sick and misses six months? And the point is not to circle which one of those it actually applies to, but to realize that someone's mere attendance is not enough to qualify an individual for formally committing to the body. It goes beyond just showing up. That there is a formal commitment that says, I, I, I'm in, I, I am one of you, and I want to be treated as one of you. I'm, I'm a believer, and I want to be obedient in this place. So those commands, I believe, demand a membership process that we can identify who those one another's are. Look, do, do not misunderstand me. For anyone that walks in that door, we better, as a church, be showing love and kindness and grace and warmness. But when you press that down the line, is it anyone that walks through the doors of this church that I must be confessing my sins to? Is it anyone who, who walks through the doors of this church? And obviously, we're going to sing in, in the context of this church. But when you walk through all of those, those one another commands, I believe that those, those must be specifically applied to those who have in some way formally identified and committed to the local church in this place. The one another commands demand a membership process. Another example, another practice in scripture that I believe demands a membership process is submission to and oversight of elders. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. I apologize, I know we're flipping around a lot this morning, but that's the nature of this study and it's going to be this way a little bit for, for the next few weeks. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the author of Hebrews is closing down his, his letter and, and he's giving them some final commands. And he gives, he gives some piercing commands in this chapter. We're gonna circle a few of them in verse 17 that relate directly to submission to and oversight of elders in the context of the local church. I'll suggest that this demands a membership process. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. 
Who are the individuals in the church that need to, to use the, the author of Hebrews terminology here, who need to submit to the leaders? Your leaders are the leaders in your church. You are not called to submit to the leaders in every church in the Kansas City area. You are called to submit in this verse. It says, submit to your leaders, not submit to all leaders in the context of, of all the local churches in all, of, all, of, all, in all places. But submit to your leaders in your specific place. What makes something your church? If you are called to submit to your leaders, what makes something your church? And we could ask the same questions that we asked before. Who exactly qualifies as those who would say that this is their church? I would contend that it is those who have formally committed to this church. They are the ones who, who have formally identified to the leaders that, that they want to obey scripture in regard to those, to those calls. But the passage goes further than just saying obey your leaders and submit to them. Look at the second half. It says, for they, your elders, your leaders, keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. This is, this is a massive question. Who, whose souls are the elders in the church watching over? It is essential that the leadership in this church can answer that question. More importantly, you keep reading, it says that those elders will give an account for the individuals that they are watching over. Who do the leaders in a local church have to answer to God for? It is incredibly important that we can answer that question. Your leaders, your elders will give an account for your souls. It is essential that they can identify and quantify who it is that they are going to give an account for. Elders don't give an account for shepherding broadly. They give an account in this verse that says that they give an account. They're watching over your souls as those who will give an account. They're giving an account for specific souls. I believe that the elders will give an account for the souls who have formally committed to this church. And that is how we interpret that passage and how we apply that passage as elders in this church. That we are specifically going to give an account for those who have formally committed to this church. Now, that's not to say that if you've not formally committed to this church, that the elders don't care. That the elders um, would, would ever refuse to shepherd someone in that scenario. That's not at all what we're suggesting. But that we will actually specifically give an account for those who have formally identified with this body. For those who have formally submitted to the leadership in this body. So I believe that, that that whole process of oversight of an elder and submission to an elder in the context of the church demands that there's some sort of identification for who exactly is, is saying that they're going to do that, for who exactly the elders are going to give an account for. Yet another practice that demands membership in the New Testament, this is a big one, is church discipline. Church discipline highlighted in Matthew 18. Let's turn over there for just a moment. Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to read this quickly because it outlines the process of church discipline. And I believe that that process suggests and demands that, that there's some sort of formal identification with who the body is. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you so that you may by the mouth of two or three witnesses, um, so that you may by the mouth of, every, of two or three witnesses, um, every fact may be considered. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That process in Matthew chapter 18 is, is what has become known as the process of church discipline, or often as we call it here, the process of church restoration. It is a process of confronting, confronting someone who claims to be a Christian for their sin. And that, that that process as it proceeds is first that you go individually and confront them about their sin. And second, that if they don't listen, that you take someone with you. And third, if they don't listen to two or three individuals, all calling them to repent of their sin, that you tell to the whole church that the whole church would go and beg them to turn because it is too serious of a matter for someone who claims the name of Christ but is not willing to submit to Christ for that to continue in the context of the local church. It disgraces the very name of Christ. And so tell it to the whole church that they may go and beg them. And if he does not listen, even to the entire church, the call then, is in Matthew 18 to consider them an unbeliever. As we read various passages about this in the New Testament, what becomes clear is that they are to be removed from the church. Second Thessalonians chapter three speaks this directly. It says that, that the church is to have nothing to do with him, but Second Thessalonians chapter three says that that individual is still to be warned by the church. The, the individual still has some level of interaction with the church. In the fourth step of church discipline there is removal that they are no longer the church but they are not and we would certainly not apply it this way in our context they're not forbidden from entering the church we we warn them we evangelize them there is still some level of interaction with that individual so if if it doesn't mean that they can't attend the church or at least interact with with, with believers, but they are removed. What is it that those individuals are removed from? That's the question that we have to answer. And, and it must mean, the only option is that it must mean that they're, they're removed from, from, from the list of those who have formally committed and identified with the body. It's not that they can't be here. It's that they're going to be treated differently as those who have made it through the fourth step of church discipline. So there's, there's something that they're removed from, but it's not the ability to attend the church. I believe that that entire practice demands that there is church membership. There must be something for them to be removed from uh, in that process. So there, there are more. We are running out of time and still have much more to cover. There are practices all through the New Testament that I believe demand membership or something equivalent to it. One another practices. Who are the one another's? Submission and oversight to elders. Who are the elders ultimately responsible for? Um, and the process of church restoration or church discipline. So the question that we need to transition to then, that, that, is, that is my biblical defense for membership. I believe that membership is biblical. That while the word is not there, uh, membership in the way we use it. The term members does show up. We even saw it in 1 Corinthians 12. But the, the way that we use the term member is not necessarily there in scripture. But it is implied and demanded by statements and practices all through the New Testament. So the question needs to become, why, why would I become a member? Why would I become a member? And that, that is the question that, that I want to answer for just a few minutes. I want to preface it with, with, with what I think is perhaps a more piercing question, and that is, why, why would you not become a member? Why would you deny membership? Um, and, and, and perhaps the answer to that is ignorance, or perhaps, perhaps there may be 
a reason, a, a quantifiable reason for not becoming a member at a church. But, but that, that is first and foremost the question that, that, I would want, that I want to ask and hear a response to. Why would you deny yourself the example that I believe we've just seen in the New Testament of membership? So what, what are, what are the reasons for membership? Well, broadly, and I would say this advocating for membership in any church that I believe you should be a member in a church. This is not just a pitch to be a member at Mission Road Bible Church, though you're all here, and so I'll make a case for that. But broadly, I believe membership in the church is a good thing because here, here are the reasons for membership. It is formal identification with the people to whom you are the body. It is formal identification with the people around you to whom you are the body. It's much like baptism, which is pretty much exactly what it was in the early church. But as we saw, because of cultural differences, it looks a little bit different now. Much like baptism, you are looking to a group of people in membership and saying, I'm in. I'm in. I'm with you. I'm formally committed to a purposeful, spiritual relationship with the people in this group. You're formally identifying with a group of people. That, that, that. That is a beautiful part of membership, that you, that you, you will stand here and, and look to a group of people and say, I, I want to obey Christ in these areas with you. It is a formal commitment that is good and healthy for the believer. It is also formal reception of the care of the leadership. It's formal reception of the care of the leadership in a specific church. You're identifying publicly with the leadership in a specific church, communicating to them your desire and your commitment to this body and your desire to be shepherded here. Make no mistake that our, our, our leadership here at Mission Road does not take lightly any individual that ever commits to membership here at this church. It's taken very seriously that someone would stand here and say, I want to be shepherded here. I, I want to be led here. I want to be cared for here. And that leads to a third reason, a third commitment. It's, it's a formal commitment to service and care in this specific place. You're committing formally to, to serve here and you're committing to, to care here. And that goes both ways. You're committing not only to serve in this body, but, but to be served in this body. And we all need that as, as Christians. And, and you're committing not only to care for other people, but to be cared for as a Christian who, who needs care in their life. And these, this formal process, I, I would suggest, lifts up all of the things that are supposed to be taking place in the context of the local church. So it's formal identification with the people to whom you are the body. It's formal reception of the care of the leadership and it's formal commitment to service and to care in this specific place. Ultimately, I, I would summarize membership this way, that it is a formal commitment to obey scripture together with a specific body of believers. You're looking and you're saying, I, I want to do this and I want to do this here and I want to do it with you. So the question we ask, why would you, be, why would you become a member anywhere? Why would you become a member at MRBC? Well, in one sense, we're gonna be answering that question for, for the next several weeks. But first and foremost, uh, I, I would say, if you're asking that question, why would I become a member at MRBC? Do you believe what we believe as outlined in our doctrinal statement? That would be step one. Um, it is difficult to become a member at a church where you are, where you are disagreeing on, on significant matters of doctrine. So, so that question we're going to answer for the next two weeks as we look at doctrinal distinctives of Mission Road Bible Church. But beyond that, beyond that, the, the answer to why would you become a member at Mission Road is very simple. It's, it's not your typical membership pitch of you get 15% off this and, and, and you only have to check this many attendance marks. It's not that kind of a list. When you're, when you're committing to membership at Mission Road, all you're doing is saying, I wanna do the things we just talked about here in this specific place. 
So formal identification with the people to whom you are the body, all you're doing in membership in a specific church is saying, I want to do that with this body, as opposed to one down the road, as opposed to to one in a different city. I, I want to formally identify with this specific body. Formal reception of the care of the leadership you're saying in, 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 in committing to a church, I want to do that. I want to obey scripture specifically here in this context with, with this leadership. I want to be shepherded and cared for and led. Formal commitment to service and care in this place. When you, when, why would you become a member at Mission Road? Because you're saying, I want to do that here. I want to do that here. The answer is very simple. It's, it's looking to scripture and saying, what does scripture call us to be? And then making a formal commitment to do that in this specific place with these specific individuals membership is a good thing. It is a good thing. I believe that membership is a biblical practice. So, members, if you are a member at Mission Road, let's be reminded of our role as members. Let's be reminded of why it is that you are a member. As I was scrolling through my emails this morning, I realized I'm some sort of a member somehow for Hotels.com. Uh, they have great commercials with Captain Obvious, but I have no idea why I'm a member there. I I don't remember ever signing up for anything, but I'm a rewards member at Hotels.com. No idea why. I hope that's not any of us in this context, in in, in this church, that yeah, we're in the members, but I don't really remember why I'm a member. There's, There's a biblical precedent and a biblical example that we're following. And so revisiting these truths that we see is, oh yes, that's why I'm a member. That's why I'm committed to this body in this specific place. So members, let us be reminded of our role as members and ask the question, am I fulfilling that commitment? We're gonna get more into what exactly that commitment is in future weeks. Non-members, if you're not a member at Mission Road, uh, let, me, let me call you to consider these things, to consider these things seriously. And if you have questions about this or concerns about anything that's been said, uh, ask us. I, I would love to talk to you more about these things. Uh, this, is, this is something that, that, that we believe and something that we're applying in our membership process. Uh, but, but we want this to be clear and, and helpful. So consider these things and ask us questions if you have one. And then third, for those who are prospective members, continue to consider these things and you have the most easy instruction of all, shoot us an email, shoot us an email. Wouldn't it be nice if all biblical obedience came down to that? Shoot us an email. That is obedience for our prospective members right now. Let us know that you're interested in this process so that we can get you what you need. Next week, we are going to do week two of the membership class, and that is doctrinal distinctives. We're actually going to split this out between two weeks. Doctrinal distinctives are a list of items that answer the following question. What is it that distinguishes Mission Road from other churches in the area? It's going to further answer the question, why would I become a member at Mission Road and not a a, a member at the church down the street, whatever church that may be? Outside of the reasons that we just said of just wanting to obey scripture in this place with these people, there are many doctrinal reasons. There are many doctrinal differences between various churches in the Kansas City area. So what we're going to do is for our members, revisit what is it that distinguishes us doctrinally from other churches in the area. And, and for those who, who aren't familiar with that, to bring us back up to speed. We're going we're gonna to go through a list of six different, six different items that, that distinguish us from other churches in the area. Once, once we get through those, 
those items. I think, based on my calculation, there's, there's maybe two other churches in the Kansas City area that would be with us on, on all six of those items. Um, and so that, that's what we're going to walk away with next week. And then uh, we're going to do that for two weeks. We're actually going to break those doctrinal distinctives down because it is, it is no small task walking through six heavy doctrinal distinctives in the space of, uh, in the space of just an hour. Uh, so we're going to break that out between two weeks. And two weeks from now, Pastor Rick is going to preach in our Sunday morning worship service the membership commitment. The membership commitment. That, that is the commitment that every new member gives. Um, we have all given that commitment if you are a member at this church. But it is, it is easy to forget and it is good to be reminded of. So we're going to go through that. And then in the last week, Pastor Bob is going to preach on serving and, and being committed and involved specifically at Mission Road.